Yeah. Yeah, old school. That's what I'm talking about. Listen, this ain't for everybody. Some of y'all need to hear this. Huh. I know you're in the trenches fighting, but check it out. I'm going to put it down like this so I can help the saints understand. Everything you're going through is all part of the master plan. Or what? You thought because you got saved, everything was going to be peaches and cream? You better wake up, son. Don't nothing come to a sleeper but a drink. Faith without works is dead. Read your Bible. You know what it says. He who don't work, don't eat. Slackers don't get fed. Huh, yeah. Jesus said, he who puts his hands to the plow looks back the same ain't fit. Some of y'all ain't been in the Christmas five minutes and you about ready to quit. I ain't mad at you. I'm just hitting you with the real. <laughs> if you died for me and I was still tripping, now how you think that make you feel? Check this out. Deep game. This here's deep, huh? Some of y'all ain't sawing nothing but you're studying trying to reach, huh? But after him who's able to possess your father's by his glory. Struggles might be part of your testimony, but it ain't the end of the story. Now the point is this was prophesied way back in the day. Choir, sing your hook right here and see if the church can relate. Tell the guys like myself, what is in processing? 
Uh, in-processing is where you go through a system that's set up through the military to get to from point A to point B. It's it's either a lot of paperwork where you get issued equipment. Uh, you know, you find out who where you're going and what when you're going to be there, how long you're going to be there. Okay. Got it. Okay, well, you can continue for there. I just wanted, you know, those okay. like myself understand what that was. I know. Okay. Um, I spent 10 years in South Korea, on and off. I was back. I had a total of five tours there. Most of the, my time was spent up on the demilitarized zone. I had uh, where, where I did day recons and night ambushes, combat patrols inside the demilitarized zone. I had a total of 385 altogether. Uh, the demilitarized zone, for those of you who don't know what it is, it, it's it's the buffer between North and South Korea. It's a no man's land. It's it's about 151 miles long, runs from coast to coast, and at that time the U.S. sector was two and a half miles by two and a half miles. Uh, we actually did preparation to go in for patrols there. We did a patrol orders and operations and rehearsals, and we got inspections from the platoon leader and the company commander and the battalion commander before we went in. Our mission was to uh, tour the North Koreans from infiltrating south through the U.S. sector of the demilitarized zone, or the DMZ as we call it, uh, at the point of using lethal force force if we had to. The American people here in the states have little knowledge about the demilitarized zone. They, uh, when 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 you ask when people see these DMZ vets wearing their their caps and stuff, they they look at these guys with a blank look on their face, and you know they say, "Why are you wearing that?" And and the reason that it's for the reason that's that's happening is because the U.S. Army and the government didn't want anybody to know why we were fighting with the North Koreans inside the DMZ, and they didn't want the fact let out that their sons and and were in harm running in harm's way up on the demilitarized zone. We were actually engaging the North Koreans to keep them from coming south, and most of the time it was their special forces. Or their spies and people that wanted to come through. Well, who who elected the U.S. to do that? This was set up back. The, the the DMZ was set up back in '53 when the war ended. Okay, and it's this has been going on all the way up from '53 to 1991. Uh, we actually in the years of '68, '69, and '70. They had the second Korean War there. Nobody knew about it. We Nobody knew about it because Vietnam was a big issue at, at the time. And the government didn't want the folks here in the States to know that we were actually fighting two wars. They were deterring GIs from Vietnam to go to Korea to fight there in Korea on the DMZ. So if a person lost their life and their family thought they had one place and they ended up someplace else, how did they explain that? That, that my friend, is a big mystery uh, because we did have casualties when I was up there on a DMZ. We had casualties, and we were told that we weren't to talk about it, we weren't to write about it, and we weren't to uh, say anything about the incident, Okay. The chain of command there was set up so restrictive that it, it went up the chain of command. It went from person to person, okay, till it got to the top guy. And then he made the decision on making how he would tell the folks that he got that individual got killed or got hurt or got wounded. That it was all on him. And so you're talking about a three-star, two-star general making that decision. So basically, he can say whatever he wants to say, and nobody's going to question it. You got it. 
He was the law of the land. Wow. We didn't have, uh, and the reason it was so hushed up and nobody knows about it is we didn't have like they had for the Afghanistan and Iraqi war here that's just recently happened. We didn't have reporters embedded with us. They were restricted. We didn't have cameras around our necks to take pictures, although, you know, some of us smuggled cameras in to take pictures. But every all that evidence that was gathered up to report, bodies, expended rounds, all that was policed up like it never happened and covered up. Wow, that's that's heavy right there. Uh, uh, Mark, yeah. your, your, your book, uh, it's called Sign Purple 3 Is that the, that's the actual title of your book? Yes, sir Yes And and how did that come about, uh, Ben? Um, how, what made you decide to write the book? Well, I wrote the book because I, I, I'm on the internet on Facebook And I, I meet a lot of different DMZ vets And they're not getting the recognition for the sacrifices that they made and and what dangers they'd incurred while up on a DMZ. So I sat down one day and I said, well, maybe I can, you know, kind of help these guys out if I get this out in the public and and maybe they'll recognize and something will change. So I wrote the book hoping that the people here in the United States would know the real story and the sacrifices these men made of a mission hidden from the people or from the public, okay, that the government covered up. Uh, so these guys, the DMZ vets, would get the recognition, like I said before. But I, this started, this this the book thing started way back when I was up on the DMZ. I started, I smuggled, I used to smuggle a camera in, in my pant leg, a little spy camera and take pictures. And I got I got a bunch of pictures on my Facebook page, like about 500 of them, from inside the demilitarized zone. And I took and huh? No, I was going to say, well, you know, while you're there and that's fresh right there, tell us, I mean, a little something about the pictures, because guys like me that haven't been to the demilitarized zone. I really have no clue outside of the movies I watch on, you know, The Fury and some of the other war movies. You know, I see those, but, you know, um, what, what were you well, saying? What was happening? The, the military zone, I'll tell you this much. I got assigned to Korea, and I was up on the DMZ in two weeks. You know, I was just like you, didn't know nothing about other than what I heard in school about Korea. And they stuck me in this little camp, tent city, little camp like a concentration camp, okay? And they prepped us for patrol, and we went on patrol. And that night, two weeks into my first tour in Korea, we got in a firefight. We killed three North Koreans, and we had two GIs got killed. And one of our own uh, bases, uh, fire bases or guard posts that's right there by where we were at opened up on us with an M60 machine gun. So we had friendly fire coming in on us. And it just all hell broke loose. It was just it was crazy. I couldn't I couldn't even I could barely look up and fire my weapon and I didn't even know what I was shooting at. That's how scared I was. And I had I guess that, that I, could I guess that, I guess I guess that was the point, Mark. You say this shit is real. <laughs> yeah, that's that's and I grew up in LA, you know, where people, you know, everybody's carrying guns in LA. And so I mean, you know, I mean but, I mean, nobody was actually shooting at me in L.A., you know what I mean? But here I am, and bullets are whizzing by my head and stuff, and I'm like, what the heck? You know, this can't be real. This can't be happening. But it was happening. And uh, the pictures are some pictures that I just took of patrols that we that I had. I was a patrol leader. After after several patrols, I became a patrol leader. And uh, it was we ran 12-man patrols. Inside the DMZ, we ran day recons and night ambushes, and uh, we—I mostly patrolled a sector called Infiltration Alley, and that was the main route that they used to infiltrate through. And uh, so during the day, I would take pictures of the patrol and of the area and stuff like that because I knew somewhere down down the line, 
I'm probably going to write something. You know, I, I I knew I was going to get out of the military sometime, and I wanted to be able to do something because I knew this was all hushed up. This was not just an ordinary mission. These were actually combat missions that we were running in the DMZ, and nobody knew about it. So that that that's what forced me to think about seriously back in 2013. 2000, actually. It took me about six years to write that book, and uh, I had to really think. But each picture that I held up, I had memoirs that I, I wrote here in the tent. I used to write just little memoirs. They give you these little writing pads to write in the military. And uh, I used to take and write little memoirs down. And I know for each picture, there's a memoir for it. So I would be able to match it. And it just shocked my mind and brought me right back to where that was happening. So the book is pretty accurate. The qu- question, Mark, uh, you said you did, um, you know, a, a quite a few day recons, and you mentioned night ambushes. Uh, is that exactly what that sounds like? I mean, once you found, you know, the perpetrators, I mean, is that actually an ambush? What is that exactly? Yes, the uh, day recon, we we did a day recon to, for the, you recon the, your ambush sites during the day, okay? And then you would go into one of the guard posts. We had two guard posts in the DMZ. One was guard post Collier, and the other was guard post Olette. Well, the one that I went into all the time was guard post Olette. And what those are, are like fire bases, okay? They're, they're secure points. There's a, there's a bunch of GIs there that defend that, okay? And uh right. We would do our day recon and then come out on our night ambush. And, yes, after 6 o'clock at night, 6 p.m., if anybody was seen inside the DMZ, we had to request permission to engage or fire and kill the guy. That's basically it. Right. Okay, and if uh, if you were taking fire from, say, they saw you and they started taking pot shots at you, then you had a system that you had to go through to – uh, request permission to fire. They had our hands tied. Our, our weapons that we had, this is how bad it was, Lamont. Uh, we, Our weapons, the trigger mechanisms were taped down so that we, we had to take the tape off. Our rounds were taped on top of the magazines, so you had to take the tape off. Everything we had that we were supposed to fight with, we had tape on it, and, and you had to take it off before you could re- request permission to fire or return fire. I'm gonna tell so you. If you if, so if you wasn't fast enough, you was just out of luck. Correct. They had, they had, they, they didn't want any shoot. They didn't. What it was is they didn't want any GIs or any kind of shooting incidents to happen in the DMZ. And if they did, they could tell you right straight to your face that it didn't happen. You know, and you're you're in the lower chain of the command there. You're the lower, you're the worker guys, and and the boss tells you, you know, this didn't happen. If you if if you say something happened, then we're going to put you out of the military. You know, so, you know, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. Wow. Yeah. So what preparation did you have to go through before patrol? Uh, What what do you guys have to do before you go out? Well, you had a a rotation. You had a three-day rotation. The first day, was preparation of your equipment, which you had to tape and tie everything down on your equipment, okay? So you couldn't, so you didn't lose it inside the DMZ, because there couldn't be any evidence left in the DMZ that says that we were out there doing patrols. We weren't supposed to be out there doing patrols, okay? Then, uh, you know, of course, your weapon had to be taped up. So that it, that it, that you couldn't use it if you had to use it you couldn't use it okay and uh, then after that you had your patrol operations order which you got from the intelligence guys at the DMZ talk the technical operations center and that gave you all your routes and legs your routes your 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 movement through the DMZ how you would move and where you would stop and where you would go again and where your ambushes would be and stuff like that. So you had to memorize all that. You couldn't carry any of that paperwork with you inside the DMZ. You had to memorize all that. 
That was the you uh, did that during the first you did that during the first and second day. And then on the second day also you gave out a patrol operations order, which just that's basically telling them all the information you got from the intelligence guys at the S two. Uh, they uh then you'd you'd go after you'd done that, you do rehearsals. You'd actually go out and act out your patrol at that little tent city I was telling you about. That's called Warrior Base. Uh, you'd go out and you'd actually walk through your patrol as many times as it took until you got it right. And then you'd have your platoon leader or the lieutenant for the platoon that you were in. He would inspect you on all that information and your rehearsals. Then the company commander would do it. Then the battalion commander would do it. If anything was wrong or anything was not right, or if you one of your guys failed to uh, memorize something or did something wrong, then you didn't go out on patrol. And and I can see how to a lot of guys that wasn't such a bad thing, was it? Yeah, a lot of guys, and that's another issue. Okay, now in in the the current war that we were in. Uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, I know the officers, you know, the motto in the uh, Army was the officers lead the way, okay? Or NCOs lead the way, but officers are always out front, okay? Right. In, in Korea, the patrol leader was either an E-5, which is a sergeant, or an E-6, which is a staff sergeant, okay? There was no officers involved in the patrols, okay? They never went out on patrols. Ever. They never led a patrol, okay? Uh, the senior NCOs, I'm talking like uh, above staff sergeant, you know, got E7, sergeant first class, and then you got your E8s. They never did any patrols. They all stayed in the rear in in the in, in Tent City. And so we went out and did the patrols, and if that, that way, see how the control issue comes in? If an officer went out there and he got shot, then there'd be a lot of red tape and paperwork and explaining that that would have to happen. Okay? Right. They couldn't cover it up. They couldn't cover it up as easily as they wanted. Now, I learned over the years after I got out that, well, actually at the brigade, I worked at a, a tactical operations center which controlled the DMZ. And uh, I learned that the officers there, if they had a clean slate, nothing happened on the DMZ, no shooting incidents or anything happened, they got bumped up a grade, uh, up, up to the next rank. That goes from lieutenant would go to a captain, a captain would go to a major, a major would go to a lieutenant colonel, a lieutenant colonel would go to a colonel, and then a colonel to a general, okay? And they would all end up at the Pentagon. After they did their tour in Korea, and that's only if there's no incident, like nobody dropped a canteen or nobody shot somebody or Correct. nothing happened. Correct. Now, the, on top of all this infiltration stuff that we had going on, we had minefields out there all over. Unmarked minefields were everywhere. <laughs> out there. I don't mean uh, to be mad. Plot get the plot thickens. Yeah, we had we had minefields all over the place, and then you had the North Koreans that uh they had these little box mines that they could pick up and move because there had been so many patrols. You know, mo- GIs aren't dumb; they're not going to walk through a rice paddy full of leeches. They're going to stay on the rice dike. Okay, I mean that's only smart. So these guys would put these little mines, these little box mine box mines that would blow off your leg or something. They put them in the ground on the on the path that you're walking, and lo and behold, one of those box mines goes off, and the first two guys that are up in front of your patrol are going to get injured. Wow. Yeah, we have uh, we and it it the reason I I quote that this is a combat mission is because we had two guard posts inside the DMZ. Okay, and then we had a, a heavy mortar platoon, which was a support for artillery, or for for our uh, artillery, I guess you could call it, is mortar, mortar round, mortar fires. Okay. Uh, then we had another one, four P three, which was a one five five uh, 
that was an artillery piece which would fire in there if we needed if we needed that and we had aircraft on standby to fly over and fly by if we needed that Well, what was your mission exactly? Was your mission just to make sure nobody else was there, or nobody else was crossing? Was that the whole purpose of being there? That the whole our purpose was to stop the North Koreans' aggression or infiltration attempts through the demilitarized zone, through the U.S. sector of the demilitarized zone. And dude, they they would try all the time to shag a patrol. If they could, if they could get in your patrol, and this is ha- it happened a lot. They could get into your patrol, okay? Because they dress like a GI, and then they'd slide into your patrol, okay? They'd kill one of the GIs and then drag him across the border, okay? And say that we were patrolling or we were on doing patrols on the north side of the northern side of the demilitarized zone in their area, and that's an armistice uh, violation. And they weren't pretty about it. They'd just flop the body up there at the, the meeting table and say, look, here's the proof. And then it's up to us to, you know, we're not going to deny it. If, if it's a GI, you know, it's ours, yeah. Right. So that's that's the story. If that was to happen, they couldn't hide that story because the press would be there, okay? CNN and all them, all the big Fox and all them folks, they're all there, okay? But when somebody gets killed like that inside and the North Koreans throw it up there like that, then it makes the news. Then they can't hide it, okay? North Korea, boy, they they kind of like feisty, ain't they? Oh, yeah, they're, uh, they have no, they're like the, in the wrestling ring, no hold bars. They got whatever works for them, they, they do it. So what is, what is your thoughts? What why do you think uh, all this was uh, the American people's kept in the dark about this? I think the reason that they were kept in the dark about this, the you know, I'm not saying this is a full blown war. Okay, I'm saying this is a war. It was like a skirmish. Uh, but uh, the reason I think they were kept in the dark is because if the american people well, how would you feel you know if your son joined the military and the recruiter came to you and said well you know we're going to send him to korea and nothing's happening there you don't have to worry about it he'll be fine and your son goes over there ends up on the dmz ends up in a patrol like i was in and ends up in a firefight where people are dying and tries to write you back a letter he thinks he's writing you a letter back and it gets pulled out and thrown in the garbage you never get the letter okay and when he comes back to the states and he starts telling you all the stories about what he did up on the dmz you're in disbelief you would be mad wouldn't you yeah when you i mean wouldn't i'm just that's just me but i i and and i'm a native american but i know when my blood gets in trouble like that or gets put in harm's way like that I, i'd get mad as do I, you know, I get I get mad when somebody misrepresents something to me, you know, or change the horse in the middle of the stream, as people used to say, you know. There you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and they they were they we would have explosions out there that happen underground where they'd be tunneling underneath the DMZ, and we'd call them in, or we would have an a, a above ground explosion where some blew up. And we'd send in a report, and we'd come back in and get debriefed. And uh, the intelligence officer that was there would say, well, that that never happened. You guys can't talk about any of this. If you talk about this, we'll give you UCMJ, which is they're going to give you an Article 15 and take some money from you and restrict you, or they're going to chapter you out of the military. Wow, so no, ain't no freedom of speech there. Yeah, it had no freedom of speech. They checked your mail to make sure you weren't talking about the DMZ when it when it got mailed out. If there was something in there that that was that they didn't like that you wrote to your mom and dad, then they took your letter and they burned it. Just never went. Now, can you imagine your son coming home and say, "Hey, mom, did you get those letters that I sent you?" And this and that and this. I never got no letters from you, honey. Well, I know I sent letters to you. 
Wow, I mean, that would just blow me away. I mean, I would be mad. I don't know. I guess I, I guess I know where I live. I, I, I know where I live, but wouldn't nothing much surprises me about our country right now. It just doesn't. Yeah, so, what do you think? What do you think about? Let's see these people. What do you think they think about you talking about this now? Oh, they're uh, no. Not, when I got out of the military, I got debriefed by a. Sergeant Major, the old old school style. They put the lights in your face, and they got a recorder there. <clears throat> and he said, "Yeah, they said uh, it just like out of the movies." And uh, I couldn't even see the guy's face. It, but uh, one question he he kept asking me over and over is, uh, "We know you're going to write something. We know you're going to do something with the information you got, okay? Because you've been over here so long, and that you you've been up on a DMZ." You can't do anything with that information for 25 years. Dude, I got out of the Army in 91, and I didn't write that book or start working on it until 2000. And it finally came out in 13. I had to wait because I didn't want folks knocking on my door, you know, from the government saying, hey, come with us. We're, you know, we're going to put you in a box and lock you away somewhere. <laughs> we want to you know what I mean? I... <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I mean it. It, it was scary. I mean, it, and they made it scary. Uh, they made it scary to the point that you know you were scared to report what you were actually seeing or what you were doing out there in the DMZ. You, you'd always come back if you had an incident. I, I I remember going out there, and I had twelve guys under me, twelve young men. You know, these guys are just some of them teenagers. Okay. And Lord help me if I could, you know, if, keep them safe. That's all my all I want to do. I used to take rounds. We used to have spare ammunition. I used to put ammunition in my pant legs, okay, so that we could shoot without having to go through all the jumping of hoops to get permission to fire and send back at least a couple rounds to scare them guys off or even hit them, okay? Right, uh, and I didn't care. I didn't even care about recovering the body. If we hit them in the North Korea, because what happens if you down a North Korean? The other North Koreans come back, try to drag him back north. That way, we can't say that they were patrolling on our side. So, but if they were right up there on the military demarcation line, that's an imaginary line. They don't have a fence in the DMZ. Okay, it's an imaginary line. You can walk right into North Korea. Okay, and. They try to stay close to that line so that, you know, like guys like me that are smarties, we get, we've got these rounds and you give them to your snipers and our, our guys snipe these guys, you know, but it stops them from firing at your patrol or harassing you. And then in the patrol, we had the motto, what happens in the patrol stays in the patrol, you know? So you got a lot of DMZ vets out there right now that had a lot of stuff happen to them in their patrols and a lot of stuff that happened while they were inside the DMZ doing their patrol that are, I mean, unbelievable. That yeah, I mean, they're actually unbelievable, but they, they had to happen. Why would a guy, why would a guy make up a story about somebody he killed in the DMZ? You know, that, I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, some people say, well, it's, it's just so you guys want attention or this. No, I mean, I'm talking not just one guy. I'm talking there's been 5.5 million GIs that's rotated up to the G, up to the DMZ since 53 to 91. Wow. And a lot of those guys don't have closure or get the recognition. They always say get the, the – they get it from the, from the Vietnam vets, and I got none against the Vietnam vets. But they get it from the Vietnam vets. They get it from all the other people that have been in wars. And they get it from regular people that, you know, well, you guys just pulled guard duty up there on the fence line. There was no fence. And we were fully combat loaded when we went into the DMZ with the mindset, be prepared to kill somebody. And that is so 
crazy. Did you um, did you choose to go to South Korea at your duty station, or they chose you? Yes. No, no. When I first came in, my brother-in-law, uh, <laughs> my brother-in-law was an ex-GI, okay, and uh, he went. He was in Germany for three years, and I had originally come in and said, "Oh, I'm going to go to Germany because Mike had been in Germany," and I said, "Okay," he, and I'm going to Germany. And he talked me into going to Korea. He said it was the best kept secret. He goes, then you'd have a blast over there. Okay? That's what he heard from other GIs that had been in Korea that went to Germany. And so I believed him, and I volunteered to go to Korea. And like I said, in two weeks I was in a firefight, and I was cursing him. <laughs> <laughs> I was cursing my brother-in-law something to me. <laughs> I mean, it's scary. What I mean, have, I, was, I was scared. What have you got me into? Yeah, there you go. What kind of what can of worms did you open here? I mean, what what am I into? So when you first arrived in South Korea, I mean, um, I'm sure that you felt like you was on another planet. But how was that for you? When I got there, I I was on a chartered airplane that landed at. Uh, Osan Air Force Base. That's a city in, in South Korea down there where the Air Force is at. Now, I'm coming from L.A., and it's 1978, you know, land of the lowriders and cool-looking stuff and Tinseltown and, you know, I mean, pretty pretty nice, you know what I'm saying. And uh, when I hit the ground, I opened the shade under the window, and I saw a Korean man with a cow and a plow was his pants rolled up and a sandpan hat on his head, plowing the field. And I said, oh, my God, where, where am I at? What We, we call it, well, most of you guys said, welcome to the dark side of the moon. Because they, they were about 30 years behind our technology or behind us, okay? I mean, it was a shock and disbelief to me. I couldn't believe it. 30 years behind on technology. Yeah. Yeah. So food, I mean, what did you guys eat? How was the housing? We didn't have, the house, we didn't have housing. We, we had, uh, uh, well, we had housing. I got to say that. We had housing. We had Quonson huts. Remember the old Marine-style half-moon metal-shaped buildings? They were open bay. You didn't have your own room. Um, you 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 went to the mess hall. The mess hall was anywhere from a half a mile to a quarter mile away. You had to stand outside in the cold when it was cold. You had to stand out in that negative 40-degree weather to get chow. Uh, to take a shower, the shower point, was outside. It wasn't in the barracks, and neither was the restrooms. They were all outside, and they were in a building. And you'd go in there and take a shower, and it might be a half a mile, sometimes three-quarters of a mile away from you, but you, you walked over there to take a shower, and then you'd walk back. And it could be 40 degrees below zero when you're doing this, okay, and snow on the ground. <laughs> and all the buildings, yeah, yeah, all the all the buildings, were fueled by diesel. The heaters were fueled by diesel. And uh, if you if you turned your heat up too high and you ran out of diesel, you were just out of luck for the rest of the month till the guy came to fill up the diesel out the big diesel drum outside. So you slept in the cold or froze or whatever whatever in the wintertime it'd be froze. In the summertime you didn't have heaters. We didn't have I mean we didn't have air conditioners. We had uh, uh, fans and windows, and it gets hot over there, okay, humid. So the fans blowing hot heat. Yeah, blowing hot heat, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you, you – that's basically how you lived. I mean, you just adapted to it. You adjusted to it. We didn't have air conditioning and the luxury of an indoor latrine and, uh, you know, uh, the mess hall was really not that big. It was 
maybe maybe sit about maybe 35, maybe 40 people in there at a time. So it, while you're waiting in line, people are eating. And what you do is you basically go in, you eat real fast and get out so the next guy can get out of the cold to come in or the heat to come in. Doesn't matter. They didn't have central heating. We used to have the back in the day, remember the old pot belly stoves? Yeah. Yeah, big metal stoves that had ran diesel and the heat that's what they you heated the place up with. Okay. We had those in the barracks and we had those sometimes in, in some of the mess halls. What was well, funny about uh, this? Go ahead, I'm sorry. What was what was funny about this, Lamont, is that the area two ID, the second infantry division where we were at up north was all like that, okay? But if you went a little bit south to Yongsan, they had all the annuities of being back in the States, back down there where they were at. Central heating and air conditioning and all this other stuff. Well, why were you guys treated differently? Because we lived in Area 1, which is under, we lived under the gun, as people, as the DMZ vets would say, we lived under the gun, artillery threat, uh, from the North Koreans every day. You didn't have to be up on the DMZ uh, to be threatened. Uh, I learned when I worked at this brigade talk, a third brigade talk, that they have about 16 pieces of artillery locked in on every little comp. We had a bunch of compounds. We call them bases, okay? But we had uh, they had 16 guns of artillery locked in on them already. They've had 50 years or at that time it was probably 30 years to get their spy network set up in the villages and onto the post to map, to map out everything where's that and get all that information back up north. So, so, so that they guys, just, so because you guys were sitting in the middle of the bullseye, you guys couldn't have correct. no amenities. Correct. We were expendable. Wow. We were a speed bump. We were the speed bump. Okay. The guys up north that really had a bad work camp Greece first in the night. Those guys lived across the river and were like two miles or a mile and a half from the DMZ. And if war ever broke out, there there'd been a speed bump. All they all they needed to do was throw their POW signs out on the fence because the north I mean they would fight. Those guys would probably fight to the death, okay? But I mean it'd be a slaughter because the way the North Koreans attack they throw everything at you at once. It's the old Blitzkrieg style technology that they use. Yeah, they try or to get it over quick. Yeah, try to push through fast and then have the regular army push through at the end. So, so how did the, um, the South Korean people receive the American soldiers? You know, when the South Korean when I went over there. Uh, I really didn't have any problems with the South Koreans. They all seemed nice. You know, they always wanted to be friendly with you and this and that. And they all knew that you were new because you were in, you just got there to your to your compound. And you'd be down in the village where all the, the hookers and whores and all the clubs were at. So they knew you were new, okay? And I never had any problem with any of them. But now that I think about it, you know – I wonder how many North Koreans I bumped into while I was down there in the Ville and didn't know it, or spies, you know, that were trying to get information. So well, the best way to to get information is to buddy up to a person, you know what I mean, be become their friend and stuff. Right. Yeah. So so I often wondered. I often wondered about that. I've got a third book coming out about something about this. What we're talking about right now. So. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of interesting, you know. If if the, the, those guys, you know, they make themselves friends and get close to uh, a, a GI, and you don't really know if they're spying, and everybody has similar appearance, uh, that's kind that's kind of scary too. You don't really know who you're dealing with. That's right, and and we always got classes before. You know, they always gave classes on on the compound when you got to your company. That they tell you, be carry, be careful of what you say and who you talk to, this and that. But you know, a typical GI, you you get a couple of drinks in that guy, and a, you know, and there's a good looking woman next to him. 
he's spilling the beans about everything. Hey, hey look, it makes you know stuff to boot. Especially she's promising, promising, well, you can spend the night with me, you know, over my hooch, over my little room I got, you know. He's going to, you know, I'm just. I'm just saying how it is. That's how I know how it is because I know GIs that come back up from from down in the village and said, man, I don't remember even going to her room or sleeping with her last night. So what else did he give up? You know, what else did he talk about when he was there? <laughs> right. Now, these, it's, this is a true story because the, the North, the, the, the Koreans – that are down in the ville, every time we'd go out on a maneuver, they would always know where we were going and be there first, set up a little, like, little store and stuff where the GIs could go get uh, Coca-Cola and uh, moon pies and stuff like that, right? They would always know where we were going before we before we got out. The GIs wouldn't even know where we were going. Uh, they would have <laughs> snacks ready for you. You got to have snacks waiting on you when you got there. <laughs> Yeah, they'd have they'd have them set up out there before we got there. And it was funny because, you know, and you don't go to the field over in Korea yet. When I was there in the old, back in the day, you you maneuvered around Korea, okay? So you never knew where you were going to go, and you never stayed in one spot for less than 24 hours, okay? You're always moving. And uh, it seemed like every time we moved, every time we jumped to a different location, there they were. They were already there set up. So <laughs> why do you why do you think that happened? How do you think that was? Just because of uh, infiltration I think, ranks or having the communication? I think yeah. I think that they they uh, were getting fed. Somebody was feeding them information and getting somebody that the person that was giving them information was getting kickbacks. You know, either money or girls or free booze in the bar, I don't know, okay? But somebody was getting kickbacks that they that they would know that, okay? And that's scary, too, because how would you determine if I'm just giving it to uh, Jose or Juan, my friend, to go serve food to get there and make some money opposed to uh, somebody that's setting up an ambush for the U.S. troops? That's right. How do you know that individual you're giving that information to is not a North Korean? Yeah, and he's watching. He's selling. He's selling that information to take care of his people. Correct, correct. So I mean, that's a lot of that's a lot of scary stuff going on. Other than you know, and and that's how I know the DMZ when I was up on the DMZ, it was all locked up because you didn't have none of them. They didn't go inside the DMZ. They you had to go through hoops to get inside the DMZ. You had to have all kinds of passes to get inside there. So no. Civilian personnel, civilian Korean personnel that I know of, other than the one that you had in your patrol, which is the Korean soldier, uh, was the only ones that went inside the DMZ with us. So they didn't, they don't actually know what our mission was, other than, unless unless somebody got back to the rear, back to the to their uh, camp, and went downtown, got drunk, and talked about, well, yeah, we did this kind of patrol up there, and this and that, and. Loose lips is what we call them. I think the U.S. has been sloppy with their little secrets for a long time because many years ago I, I worked at Fort Bliss for a little while. Um, oh, yeah? As, as a PE instructor. And oh, okay. um, they had um, so many other countries on the base training. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, if if I don't want you to know what the hell's going on in my house, I'm not gonna let you in my house, stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I just never, I never, I just never understood the logic of that. Why would you have all these other countries training? You know, and that was right, that was right about the time when the B-52 came out. Um, wow. Uh, what was that the B-1 bomber? Is that the new bomber, right? The B-1. The B-1? Bomber, yeah. Yeah, yeah. About the time when the B one came out, and and it was there at Fort Bliss, and I mean, you got all these countries here training on the base, but you worried about uh, uh, secrecy and you know spies and shit. Now I just never understood that because if I don't want you, Mark, to know what's going in my house, I'm not gonna let you in my house. That's that's exactly. But you know what? It's about Lamont is, and what I found out in Korea and my 
I got a Korean wife, and she's she's told she's taught me a lot about the ethnics of Korea. It's about money. If you got money, money equals power. I mean, if you got enough money, and you you offer a guy talk talk about a GI that makes at the time when I was over in seventy, I was making four hundred dollars a month. Now somebody walks up to you and says, "Well, here I'll give you twenty thousand dollars if you do this." What what do you th- you know? And he goes, "You're not going to get in trouble for it. Just just all you got to do is do this." What do you think is going to happen? What your name is again? What is it you want me to do? Yeah, I mean, and and it's 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 funny because at the time when I was over there, you know, from in seven early seventy eight in the middle of eighties, dude, you could trade soap, uh, stuff out of the PX that you could take down there. They call it you you could black market it, okay, and make money, but you also if you wanted, like, to get some some special kind of stuff, okay, you could trade that stuff for that, okay. So they had a barter system. So if you were, hey, I'm, I'm shock. I could tell you it was a shocker to me. And I mean, you got think about it. You got young men over there. They're not worried about. You know, they just want to. Most guys, when they got over there, they get there and they said, "Oh God, what I get into? Uh, I got a year to do here." And then uh, after six months, they're they're saying that they're ready to. They're they're not they're not worried about anything. They're going back to the states in, in six months. They're not worried about war breaking out. They're not worried about anything happening in the next six months. But they're just work concerned about going home. Seem like they'd be worried about staying alive every day. That that's that's the issue, okay? That's the issue that I in this third book that I'm writing uh, it's it brings out a bunch of key points. I'm not done with it yet. I'm about a hundred pages, hundred and five pages into it, so But it will but be ready this year though, right? Oh yeah, it'll be ready in about I'll give it about six months, it'll be ready. Do you yeah, have a name for it already? Yeah, it's called facades. Say that again. Facade. Okay, facade. Facade means, facade means uh, it's a French word for mask. You know how everybody you talk to Lamont, and even in the even in our world right here in the states, you go to a guy or you go to somebody and you talk to them and you become buddy buddies and this and that, but the whole time they're with you, they're wearing a mask. You don't really get to see the really true person. Only in very seldom. I call them. I call them. I call them the representative, uh, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you don't really get to see most people. Most people that I know of have a mask. They don't. They don't want to show you everything that they have about them. You know, the, the true them. And and I I mean that's understandable. That's our society's like that. Okay, but you know you don't have to be like that. If if you if you're truthful with the person and and you you just be yourself, you shouldn't have nothing to hide. You know what I mean? But that, well, you said that, the operative word by being yourself. A lot of people have forgot how to be themselves. Correct. Correct. And. That's the issue in Korea, right? When I was there with the with the new book, it's called Facades. It's about it's it's an espionage novel and spying novel. That's it, it it's about a big spying that happens in the South Korea and it spreads to the United States through the military. Is this factual? It's or is it, is yeah, it's gonna, it goes on with. It's it's not actual. It's well, some of it's actual and some of it's uh, fictional. But I mean, I'm gonna make it a fictional book because I don't want people knocking on my door again. So, uh, but uh, it goes. It's gonna go from 
the mid '80s all the way up until the 2018, because it involves satellite technology in there. So I have to, you know, I'm, I'm doing some research on different technologies that we had back in the day, and then just how they've improved it over the years to where it's at now. And in in fact, with the North has the North have. The North Koreans have a couple of spy satellites, or they call them satellites, communication satellites. Everybody calls a spy satellite a communication satellite. A communication satellite can have all kinds of arrays on it, different different things that it does. So it's 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 going to be an interesting story. So so you probably I get just, to talk about your uh, uh, you probably get to talk about your president and what's his name, Kim Jong Young, or what is his name? Uh, Kim Jong Un is the one. Yeah, we're gonna talk. He'll, I'm not gonna. I don't want to directly attack them, but I'm just gonna put the leader up north. So you know, <laughs> it's funny. I, I talk about this, and and I've worked with the one leader, the first leader they had, Kim Il Sung. I, I, I dealt with him up on a DMZ, and then Kim Il Sung, his son, up on a DMZ, and now I'm getting. I'm getting to know Kim Jong Un just by what's coming over the internet and on the news. So there's not much difference in in what those guys did or how they are. They're all the same. Yeah, well, I'm just I'm just kind of concerned about two nuts got access to nuclear weapons. That's a I, Lamont. I can tell you a story, but you probably get mad at me. We knew about <laughs> their nuclear. <laughs> We knew the United States government and the army in South Korea knew about their nuclear capabilities back in 1980. That's when Jimmy Carter was in power. Right. We knew about they had the material, they just didn't have a delivery means. Wow. And everybody everybody that's been up on a DMZ or been around in Area 1, which is the 2ID area, those folks probably, if not all of them, knew about this kind of stuff that I'm talking about. And this is the kind of stuff that we try to talk. If you walked up to a vet and you hear on the news where Kim Jong Un has launched another missile, and you walk up to a DMZ vet and he, you know, he kind of blows it off because he knows that he's, he's that it's always it's been around for years. Right. We've just never done nothing about it. Right, Mark. We're down to the last minute or so. I want to give you the you know the opportunity to tell people where they can go and get your book. Okay, yeah, my book, Call Sign Purple Three. There's another book too, Defcon Four. They're both available anywhere on the internet. Uh, well, I take that back. They're, Call Sign Purple Three is off of the publications for right now. I'm getting ready to republish it, but they will be available on the net and any bookstore on uh, print on demand. All you got to do is walk into the bookstore and ask them, give them the title, and they can get it to you in a couple of days. Well, great, man. I enjoy, definitely enjoy talking to you, and think about us when you get your next book ready to come out, and we'll be glad to have you come back and talk about it. All right, Lamont. Hey, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate talking about this and getting the word out. Hopefully we, we educated some folks. I hope as well, and we definitely appreciate uh, having you as well, and and good luck moving forward. And for those who just joined us late, you can hear the show in its entirety in about two seconds, and it will be available uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and, of course, worldmovement.com, and let me see, a few other places. So just Google us and come 2.30, same time, Boy, I'll be here. I'll kind of play a play. And thanks for joining us. And thank you again, Mark. Thank you for having me on the show and everybody that listened in. I thank you.